when we put out trainings. We don't narrow it down to just one specific bureau or agency. If you can help us, if you can help the vulnerable population, it's within your parameters of your work and what you do. We're happy to partner with anybody and everybody. Welcome to the podcast, Pathways to Safety, bridges from adult protective services to community-based service for adults experiencing abuse, neglect, and exploitation. We come to you with the goal of introducing community partners in Montana who work together to assist victims and survivors of adult experiencing abuse, neglect, and exploitation. My name is Marianne Liu. I am your host today to meeting one of these community partners in Montana. Before we start the episode, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is supported by the Administration for Community Living, the United States Department of Health and Human Services through a 2021 Elder Justice Innovation Grant, with Montana Adult Protective Services being our primary community partner. Grantees carrying out projects under government sponsorship are encouraged to express freely their findings and conclusions. Nonetheless, our findings, conclusions, point of views, or opinions do not necessarily represent the official policy of the federal government. Now, let's join our guest in the conversation. Hello, everyone. Today, we have Trevor Tenjin, Adult Protective Services Bureau Chief, and Leanna Waller, Adult Protective Services Section Supervisor, joining us. My name is Marianne Liu. I'm your host today. So we'll just jump right in. We're very excited to have Adult Protective Services with us today. Could you tell us, first of all, what does APS do? So in Montana, APS is charged with investigating all allegations of abuse, neglect, and exploitation of our vulnerable adults. So we are the bureau. We receive a concern from somebody in the community about a vulnerable adult, and we investigate. We also have wards of the state that we act as agent of the state for guardianship. And so we manage approximately 85 guardianships as well. And thinking about who you serve, who are the APS clients, could you tell us a little bit more about, you know, the at-risk adults that you serve? Absolutely. So the vulnerable adult is in our definition, any individual age 18 to 59 who has a disability and that disability impairs their life activities of daily living. So their means of caring for themselves. And then also once you have reached the age of 60, regardless of disability, that is also under that vulnerable adult criteria. So those are the individuals that we're able to serve. And if I understand it correctly, in Montana, Adult Protected Services also investigates in long-term care facilities. Is that right? Could you tell us a little bit more about the localities of APS investigation? Sure. So we do have authority to investigate concerns that may involve residents who live within a facility setting, such as a nursing home or assisted living or maybe even a group home setting. It's important to note that we're investigating an allegation between a victim and a perpetrator. When there's a concern that involves a facility that's systemic, meaning that it involves the entire facility, that is more in the jurisdiction of the licensing or the certification bureau. So what we're really investigating is when there's a concern involving a victim and a perpetrator. Oftentimes we will you know, collaborate with the Office of Inspector General, which is your surveyor who does that licensing and certification if an issue may involve multiple perpetrators or multiple victims. 
And anytime there's this concern in a setting like that, we notify the Office of Inspector General that we intend to investigate within that setting so that they're aware of our activity. So could you tell us a little bit more about the investigation process, what it looks like in Montana? Absolutely. We can receive a referral one of two ways. One, you can call us through our toll-free number, or you can go onto our website and make an online referral. Once we receive the concern from outside, our intake unit will process what was provided and reach out to the reporter to gather further information, make sure there were no details missed. Depending on what the concern is, intake will assign a priority, and that just dictates the response time by an investigator. So it could be priority one being our most concerning. There's immediate risk to the victim in that case. Those type of cases, just for example, could be any type of violence, sexual assault, domestic violence, that sort of thing. Those would rise to a high level. Some severe neglect where somebody is really experiencing some trauma and harm. That dictates an immediate response time by the investigator. It could be a priority two, which there's some concerning information. It's not so immediate as a priority one, but that offers a five-day response time, and that's to meet eyes on with the alleged victim. There's priority three, which kind of sums up the bulk of our cases, really. There's some concerns happening, but maybe it's fiduciary. There's some concerning charges on a bank statement, that sort of thing. That gives a 10-day response time for the investigator. And then we also have a category called information referral, which there may not be any abuse, neglect, or exploitation occurring, but somebody is calling, asking for services in that community, what's available, or the number for meals on wheels, that sort of thing. That'll be categorized as an information referral because there's no investigation to be had, but that will still go to an investigator local to that area who knows the resources, what's available, what's not, and they'll make contact with that reporter to provide those services. So once a priority is assigned from intake, the report will get sent to the region where the concern is based, generally where the alleged victim is residing. And there's a regional supervisor that will see that, will take the report and then assign it to an investigator. Once the investigator receives the report, one of their first calls is to the reporter to verify the information. Of course, you know, hearing our response times, immediate five day, 10 day, a lot can change, especially in that 10 day process. The situation could have got much worse, which may dictate changing the response or the priority to a more immediate. The situation could have resolved itself. There may no longer be a concern. Just need to gather all that appropriate information and make sure that we're going into it with our best foot forward. After making contact with the reporter, the investigator will then meet with the alleged victim see what's going on, address the concern that was noted, and gather as much information as they can. And then following from there, they'll meet with collateral. So anybody involved with that alleged victim's life could be a primary care provider, could be neighbors, friends, family, anybody that has some information that we feel could be pertinent to our case. And lastly, they meet with the alleged perpetrator. Once they've gathered all the facts, they have the evidence, which is something that they should be gathering all along the way. If it's a financial concern, you know, they should be gathering bank statements, all those things that are tangible evidence. Also gathering statements from anybody who's willing to provide information. And so by the time they get to the alleged perpetrator, they kind of know the story. And so it points them in a direction of what questions to ask, what anomalies do they need explained, that sort of thing. So on a financial case, I'm using that as an example more often than others, but they may have all the disputed charges laid out and asking 
what is this charge for? Is this charge for the care of the alleged victim or was it for your own personal gain? That sort of thing. Just trying to get answers to all of these questions we have. And the ultimate goal in any investigation is to gather evidence, facts, statements that either support or refute the allegation. So at the end of it, we can say that we believe the allegation occurred, we would call that indicated. If we believe it did not occur, not indicated. And if we just don't know, maybe you have a he said, she said type of scenario that may be inconclusive if there's no facts to say one way or the other. In addition to the investigation, there's a very important part we try to look for is needs and wants of the alleged victim. If there's something that we feel they're lacking, whether it's in-home care, if they request meals on wheels or anything that we can make referrals for services, that's something that we do a lot of. So we make service plans specific to that alleged victim, offering services and supports that help them get where they need to be, hoping to keep them in their home, in their environment, safe, receiving all the services that will keep them thriving and healthy. And so that's on the investigation part, that's where that kind of rounds out. Once the report's complete, it gets sent to the regional supervisor for completion. The regional supervisor will glean through and make sure everything was appropriate. It doesn't end there for APS. Once a report is completed, if there was a service plan assigned to it, meaning we referred for services, it will then get sent to our social service workers, who is another group within APS, who will follow up with that alleged victim 30, 60, and 90 days after the case closure and make sure one, that the services were appropriate, make sure that they're being utilized. If they're not being utilized, try to find other services that are more appropriate and just making sure that the victim is cared for. We didn't just get in in a quick hurry and then left and you know left them still in need and not in a safe place. So we do have that kind of quality assurance on the back end to make sure everything was appropriate. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. So knowing there are all different kinds of situations of adult maltreatment, what are the types of abuse investigated in Montana? When we use the term maltreatment, we're referring to abuse, neglect, and exploitation. Abuse can be physical, it could be sexual, it could be verbal, emotional. Neglect can be the lack of providing care for somebody, or it can be self-neglect in the terms of that person isn't able to provide for their own protection or needs. And then exploitation, and really what we're looking at there is the misuse or illegal use of someone else's assets or property. So those are the types of allegations that we receive and we investigate. Do you sometimes see different types of abuse happening in one case? In one case, yeah. Oftentimes you're going to, most cases probably would include more than one type of abuse occurring, especially in cases that have exploitation. It's pretty common that you're going to see another type of abuse occurring alongside that exploitation. Just to put it in perspective, kind of what Leanne is talking about. So just in our last fiscal year, so 2021, we had about 11,500 allegations of abuse, neglect, and exploitation, which made up about 7,500 reports. So a little over one allegation per report. So, And then thinking about all these different complex situations and all the services and needs of the at-risk adult, who does APS collaborate with to help you know, all of those adults experiencing abuse, neglect, and exploitation. We collaborate with anybody who's got a dog in the fight, kind of is how we put it when we put out trainings. 
we don't narrow it down to just one specific bureau or agency. If you can help us, if you can help the vulnerable population, it's within your parameters of your work and what you do. We're happy to partner with anybody and everybody. Some of our bigger partners, of course, law enforcement and the different entities within there in the Department of Justice, Commission of Securities and Investments, Medicaid Fraud, our licensing bureau, so our Office of Inspector General, Department of Labor, local law enforcement agencies, county attorneys, I mean, you name it. We have a ton of partners and a lot of folks that are really helping us in this fight. Yeah, I would just add that why it's so important that we partner with other agencies is because we as an agency don't offer any services. So unlike some APS agencies across the country that may offer in-home care or homemaker assistance or personal care, other services, meals, we don't offer those services. So it's vital that we partner with those agencies that do. So like our state unit on aging that houses all of our area on aging agencies that provide like meals on wheels, homemaker services, personal care services, all of the other private and third-party agencies that do that work of going into homes and helping people get the services they need. It's so important that we partner with them because we need them to provide that service to ensure that the victim or alleged victim is safe, as Trevor was saying. We spent a lot of time on, you know, just recently strengthening our relationships with others. And Leanne and I have become a part of a lot of different groups, bureaus and agencies that meet and triage some of these tough, complicated type of reports that we receive. And I think that's been paramount to really trying to get out and do as much trainings in the community facilities. We offer training around the state free of charge. We provide all the equipment. We go out and we give abuse, neglect, exploitation training. I think that has helped a lot. There's sometimes, you know, a lot of the, the frustrations and challenges comes with just a misunderstanding of what maybe APS can actually do. You know, some folks think that state APS is you know, kind of the fix-all. They can go in and grab an elderly person and swoop them off to a nursing facility against their will, and that's really not the case. Or just implement a guardianship at a mere request. That's not the way that that works. And so being able to get out there and be a part of these groups and really share where our parameters lie and how we can help each other has been paramount. Also getting embedded in our law enforcement academy, being that they're one of our biggest partners, we obviously refer a lot of cases to law enforcement that we feel have a criminal element to them. Getting into the law enforcement academy, we train every law enforcement person in the state as they go through the academy, they all go to one. So it doesn't matter if you're county, city, Fish and Game, Bureau of Indian Affairs, doesn't matter, they all go to the same academy. So that's been really good for us and teaching them how we can work together. And you know, there's always this focus with the law enforcement that the criminal aspect is the only part to the problem. And that's really not true. You have the whole person left. And you know, many times if you have a domestic violence type situation with our vulnerable adults and one of them gets arrested and removed, well, you may have just now taken the caregiver out of the home. So the law enforcement part doesn't really look into, well, how do we get this person a new caregiver? That's where APS comes in and making sure they still have their cares and supports while that caregiver is not there. So that's some of the things that we touch on, how we can you know, really work together and they can handle the criminal element, which is absolutely necessary and pivotal. And then we can come in and handle the person and making sure that they have what they need to thrive. It's really been a benefit, I think, probably for both agencies, too, because when we talk about one of the challenges of getting a lot of our cases seen by 
law enforcement or the prosecutor's office or the county attorney, the people who can actually bring charges against somebody and seek some sort of justice for the victim, being able to speak at their academies, being able to build or foster a better relationship with those agencies allows them to learn more about the importance of our cases, especially since we're seeing cases on the increase here in Montana. We have a growing aging population, abuse, neglect, and exploitation. Just over the past three years, when we look at our statistics, you know, from last year, we've seen, what was it, like a 17% increase. And that's just going to continue as our population ages, unfortunately. But I think if we are able to better educate our law enforcement and the people who have that ability and the authority to actually bring some charges against some of these individuals who are causing this trauma and these actions against this vulnerable population, it's just a win-win for everyone, really. Good to hear. And in thinking about all these different partners that APS investigators interact with, you know, law enforcement, prosecution's office, or, you know, aging services, disability services, so on and so forth. I know that Montana has a very kind of robust training program for your staff. Could you tell us a little bit more about the training that staff received? Yeah, so when we have a new hire come on, we generally have them with their supervisor. So the regional supervisor, they'll be with them for in-person, generally up to two weeks. And so they're really just teaching them, training them, all aspects of APS, our manual, what our policy procedures are, taking a deep dive into our reporting system, which is LEAPS, where we kind of house all of our information and work through our cases. They'll start going out with them on referrals to show them how things are done and how to be an APS investigator. We have online training that we have them go through. Some of it's developed on our own just to kind of fit some of the need that we've been seeing, some specialized sexual assault training, domestic violence training, things that we've gathered over the years. They have the 23 core competencies they're expected to go through within first year of employment. We're excited that's being revamped at NAPSA and is being released, I believe, in August. We have some new trainings that we're getting folks entered into right now. It's collaborative safety, and so that's going to be teaching our APS investigators advanced forensic interviewing techniques. And so all of our investigators will be trained as an advanced forensic interviewer. The training never stops. We're always trying to learn. We have to. Things are constantly evolving and changing. We're kind of a revolving door of training, and they seem to enjoy it. And when we don't have some training for maybe a month or two, we get to ask if there's more training coming, or they'll start looking at some of the state professional development courses that are out there. And there's just a ton of stuff. But really, some of the more beneficial training we give is we just make sure to do a lot of on-the-job training with them. So once their investigators, or once the supervisor is done, with the one-on-one -on -one training and taking them out on cases, generally they're assigned to another investigator that's been in that area for some time. And so they'll shadow that person still some more and only until they're comfortable do we have them doing investigations on their own and going out and looking into concerns. And then in thinking about some of my experiences interacting with service providers or the general public, I do feel like the awareness of reporting adult maltreatment to adult protective services, I think that awareness has increased, but then a lot of the times the challenges of APS work and how much APS can do is still not exactly that awareness, that level of awareness is not really yet there. So I wanted to see if you might be able to discuss a little bit about, you know, challenges in doing APS work so that, you know, our listeners would be able to better understand what APS does. Yeah, I keep saying that I'm going to like create one of these memes that you see where it's like, 
this is what the public thinks I do. This is what my boss thinks I do. This is what my mom thinks I do. This is like what I actually do. And we need one of those. I don't know who creates those things, but somebody needs to create one for APS because I think it would be really helpful. There's a lot of misconceptions about what we do. And oftentimes people like fall into two different camps. One of like, they have no idea what APS is. They didn't know we exist. Or they're like in the camp of like, yes, they know what we are and they don't want anything to do with us. So it's like really the goal has been like trying to create this third camp of like, we want you to know who we are. It's important that the public, that the citizens of Montana know who we are and that people have a relationship with us where they don't fear us or they don't feel bothered when we come, that they understand what our intention is when we maybe knock on their door. Because we're coming with a lot of, you know, hard questions, especially when you're dealing with people who have experienced trauma. Some of the questions that we might have to ask them are going to be really hard and challenging. And not a lot of people want to answer that to a person they just met five minutes ago. So we do have a big goal of really just helping people understand what our mission is, what we do, what we're responsible for doing. And understanding too, that when we talk about being charged with receiving the allegations of abuse, neglect, and exploitation in investigating those, our authority is granted to us through state law. So all of the Montana citizens have come together through legislation and decided that we are the entity who is going to take this charge and we're going to respond to these reports. So we have a responsibility. We're trying to do our job to ensure that everyone is safe and that their needs are being met. I think that's one of probably the biggest challenges is just helping people understand what it is that we do and what we can't do, really. So that's the other side of it is just there's a lot of things people sometimes want us to do that is outside of the parameters of what our authority gives us to do. I think over the last pre-pandemic, I would say, is really when we started getting out there and doing a lot more outreach, especially working with people that we partner with that we hadn't had good relationships with and making sure that we have a better understanding of what our roles are. I think now trying to really make sure that we're putting some focus into the general public and helping them understand what APS is because there is such a growing need in Montana for people to understand who we are, how to make a report if they have a concern. I think, you know, that challenge just lies ahead of us as, you know, something that we're going to have to continue to work at. I would say, too, just the increase of reports and, you know, needing to be able to meet that demand with our staff. So making sure that we have, you know, enough staff who can respond to the amount of reports that we receive appropriately and they can do a really good job on their investigations, that they're not bogged down by enormous caseloads that seem impossible, that they have all the resources that they need to do a thorough investigation so that they can, you know, make sure they're providing referrals that are appropriate to the victim but also making, you know, if we have to refer something on for a concern for criminal activity, that they have the training and the resources they need so that they can make that report a good report to hand off to law enforcement or another agency. You know, we ask a lot of our APS staff. They kind of have to be a jack of all trades, but by definition, we're civil investigators. In any given case, they could run into something that's potentially criminal. And for face value, 
our folks are, you know, casual dress, we're friendly, you know, we don't have a uniform and, or a badge, and so we don't kind of have that dominating appearance, and folks are just more generally apt to open up to us, and so they will start divulging things. Could be that they're being abused, or it could be some type of situation where they're being sexually assaulted, and we want to make sure that our staff are trained, and they don't just cut the person off and say, hey, wait, you're getting into criminal stuff, you know, we can't touch that, let me get a law enforcement officer here, because if they started to talk about it, you don't want to shut them down, especially if they're a survivor of domestic violence or anything sexual related. You want them to open up and keep talking, and then you know, we could be a champion for them, especially when we're referring that to law enforcement. We'll have great details. Just give law enforcement more that they can, more information for their investigation. But yeah, so we ask our investigators a lot. They have to be knowledgeable of Montana Code Annotated, so our crimes, elements of crimes. At any given time, depending on what the need is, they have to know what services are available for referrals. They have to understand, is the situation, does it warrant a guardianship? Is the person not able to care for themselves or understand their situation? So is there a need for guardianships, you know, collaborating with county attorneys? I mean, all types of stuff. And so that's the challenge sometimes because it's, you know, we've got folks that are still learning even 10, 15 years on the job. You know, it's not one of those jobs where you can do it for a couple of years and it's like, oh, I've got it down. Everything's great. Everything comes to you naturally. I mean, there's still a lot of research and, you know, day-to-day learning. You know, just some other challenges, internal challenges, I would say, with our employees' low pay, which is set by, you know, legislation as far as what our budget is and what that's going to be. Leanna talked about the increase in caseloads. Every year, you know, they've increased at least by 1,500 cases per year since I've been here, and I'm just going on six years. So, you know, many of our employees are looking at a caseload of 30, 40 cases at one time. That's 30, 40 cases with 30 or 40 victims, perpetrators, all the collaterals that come with that. And so you have several thousand people maybe at one time you're dealing with that could be calling you and they have to jump off of what they're doing on one case and go into the other because they're providing information. And it's a lot to keep up with which leads to the next one is employee burnout. We're fortunate enough to have a pretty low turnover here. I think we fostered a great environment here between our workers and our management. You know, we have open communication. We try to help them out as much as we can, but that still happens. We still get folks that, you know, run into burnout and they think they can never catch up and get ahead. One of the things that Leanna and I have tried to do is, you know, we're not so much concerned about how long a case is open for. So, you know, setting a timestamp on a case and saying you have to be done within 30 or 60 days. We've kind of got away with that because I want folks to take the time that every case needs. If it needs more time and you're actively working it, then do what you need to do. We do have timestamps and think it's important, at least for the initial contact with the victim and that being face-to-face. But other than that, we want our folks to really work these cases and take, you know, give them the time that's necessary to make sure that this person is in a good place. And, you know, one thing we found previously when we were really on folks about closing out cases and set timelines is, yeah, they may close it out, but if it was closed prematurely, there's going to be some recidivism and that person is going to come back. And so why did we close it out if we're just opening it back up and dealing with it again? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So some of our smaller counties we run into where there's maybe a lack of resources, whether you know, within the county attorney's office or law enforcement entity that's there, just getting their buy-in on taking some of our cases can be a challenge. You know, we can only do so much as a civil investigative agency. We can't sometimes develop the probable cause 
that's needed for law enforcement to take something on. We can get preponderance of the evidence, which is our threshold, but that's a much lower standard than probable cause. And so, again, that's just a training thing, you know, working with folks and our law enforcement partners, really getting them to tell us what they need on any given case to make it something that they can work with. I think we touched on it, the funding and lack thereof. We don't have a lot of funding. It hasn't increased really since I've been here in the six years. And so we're doing a lot more work, but with the same personnel. And so every year our cases are increasing and, you know, there's more and more. And so we're taking those on with the same amount of investigators, same amount of supervisors. It's a lot. Another area, I think it falls in the realm of ageism and getting some folks to actually believe because there are folks out there that don't believe that there is domestic violence with our elderly populations or that there is sexual assaults occurring with our 70, 80, 90 year olds. It is happening. And, you know, sometimes folks, they'll kind of get hung up on that age or that disability. And it's like, well, we don't really know where to go with this. And it's like, well, the allegation is sexual assault. Yes, the person is 80 and they may have some dementia or something, you know, they're not able to reasonably articulate everything that happened and give you every fact. But let's remove that age or that disability component. Let's just say that it's a 12 year old, you know, and it's like, oh, well, that's very easy. We would take it this way and we would go down this path. And it's like, so let's do that. Why are we hung up on the age of the disability? Do what needs to be done. Let's go. That's something as well. It's kind of a barrier that we have to work with folks on. Maybe we should just add in here and talk a little bit more about like self-determination and autonomy, because I think we've touched on it, but I also think that this part of the work we do might lead to some of the misconceptions that the public has about what we do and how we respond and maybe feel a lack of response from our agency. So understanding that we are a civil agency and that our intervention is voluntary or people's willingness to accept any services or recommendations or referrals from us is voluntary. If that person has decision-making capacity, which unless we have something from a medical professional or a court from a judge stating that that person lacks capacity, we assume that that person has capacity and can make their own decisions. And so if they don't want our intervention, if they don't want referrals for services, they have the right to refuse that. So sometimes one of the things we hear from the public is that, yeah, we made a report and then you guys didn't do anything. This person's still in the home. They're still in this bad situation or in this bad way. And the other part here that we need to also talk about is confidentiality. So one of the things that people, sometimes the public wants from us is more information about what we did do. And we're really bound by confidentiality laws. So just as you know, the person calling in may not want us to share with the victim who made that report and they're protected by confidentiality laws that prevent us from being able to let them know who made that report. The victim and the perpetrator, they're protected under those same confidentiality laws also. So we can't call that reporter back. We can't inform the general public about what happened, what was the status of the investigation, what was the outcome of the investigation. And that might include things like this person chose to not accept services. So oftentimes I think the public might see us in that light just because we're bound by those laws and they may not understand because they might see the person living in a certain way or in a certain circumstance that isn't healthy for them. 
that they might be choosing to live in that situation. I think that's a really hard thing for some people to understand that if they have autonomy, they have the right to make choices, but they just might not be the most healthy choice for that person. Thank you both. I mean, it sounds like a lot of information, and I hope you know this would help raise awareness for the general public regarding you know what to expect from adult protected services. To wrap it up, what Leanna you already touched upon when someone report say this could potentially be a mandatory reporter. So the general public and the mandatory reporter, what should they expect after they report to adult protective services? The first thing they should expect is a phone call or contact from our agency about the report that they submitted. It's important when I do trainings, I like to train that this is going to be always a one-way street. So our agency may reach out to them to, as Trevor talked about earlier, to find out if there's been any change in the situation, to see if there's any information, additional information that that reporter was not able to provide at intake, either by phone or online. And it also serves as a way to let them know that, yes, your report has been received. So that's the first thing I think they can expect. At any time, they are able to call into our agency and report new information or a change in information. But just keep in mind that this will always be a one-way street. They can call us anytime. We have the capability to merge multiple reports on the same individual. We have the capability of receiving additional information on the same report and including that in the report so the investigator is aware of it. A lot of times I hear from people that they just weren't sure what to do. They had already made a report, but then they had all this other information. And I don't want that to hinder people from calling in. They can call in at any time and give us information. What we can't do is call them back and let them know the status or the outcome of the investigation. If you're an alleged victim or an alleged perpetrator, those are the only individuals involved in a report that can request information on the investigation itself. And they should expect to receive some notice of closure when that report is completed. Is that also true with the alleged perpetrator? Like they can request information? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, they're the only two individuals, well, the only individuals who can. But if there's a power of attorney or a guardian involved for either party, then that person could also request on their behalf. But we do make sure, especially not so much with the victims, but if a victim requests information from the report or a copy of the report, we'll give them the case summary. We're fine with that. If it's a perpetrator, And we will kind of scrutinize that a little bit more and make sure that we're keeping folks protected if they maybe provided us some information. So we'll screen some of those with our Office of Legal Affairs, who's our representing attorney, and make sure that if something needs to be redacted that we do, we don't want there to be harm caused to anybody who provided information. So, and in any case, we will always do some redacting and generally that redacting is the reporter. So their identity is not, you know, obviously, Xing out the name, so blocking out names. But then if the information kind of suggests who the reporter is, we will glean through that as well and make sure to take that part out too. So we will make this guessing game. And even though maybe the name's blocked out, they can still see based on what's written, who gave the information. So we do take a lot of quality and care in making sure the information we give is appropriate. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Trevor. Thank you, Liana, for being here with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. We hope you found it useful. 
This podcast was produced by Studio K Productions. Our podcast logo was designed by Meng Yuwen. We welcome your feedback. Please visit elderjustice.acl.gov to leave a comment at the bottom of the web page's "Contact Us" section.